I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with Dyspnea on, oh S- <laughs> on S2D, the Simpsons Diagnosis Podcast. You gotta love those classic medicine topics, right? Dyspnea, abdominal pain, chest pain. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Scott, you're the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present to me? I do. Uh, wait, wait, let me guess. Is it someone who's short of breath? Uh, you know, your your insights are just breathtaking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Anyway, so this is a case, uh, believe it or not, of someone I saw when I was an intern, which was a very long time ago, 1984 to be specific. Uh, I saw her in the emergency room. She's a 52-year-old woman who presented uh, to the emergency room, actually short of breath. She said she'd gotten so short of breath, she couldn't even work around her house. She'd have to stop to catch her breath. Uh, She first noticed it about three months ago, and it's beginning worse and worse. Um, Prior to that, she could walk around with no problem whatsoever, and there weren't any obvious clues. She wasn't a smoker. She didn't have fevers, chest pain, or other symptoms. She had no prior history of asthma or heart disease. As a matter of fact, her past medical history was completely unremarkable. Hmm. That's all you're going to give me? Well, okay. So on physical exam, her vital signs were normal, and her heart showed a regular rate and rhythm without murmur, gallop, or rub, as we say, and her lungs were clear. How's that? So you're not giving me anything else. I'm not giving you any. I didn't have anything else. It um, was quite hard. <laughs> that's tough. Um, I guess this happened in, you said, what, 1954? So No, no 84. <laughs> thank you very much. I was thinking pneumonic plague. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah so it's it's an interesting case. So 52-year-old woman doesn't, doesn't tell us a whole lot. She sounds like she's healthy to begin with. Um, and it's interesting because I usually think about shortness of breath as, you know, is this chronic shortness of breath? Is this acute shortness of breath? Um, this is somewhat chronic you know it's been going on for three months but it sounds like it started pretty acutely three months ago is that true it was hard for me to say it's clearly progressed from somebody who had no clear exercise intolerance to incapacitating intolerance okay Okay. so at very least it's been it's been sort of rapidly progressive right in in her um and you know when i think about the things that you know, come to mind immediately as common causes of dyspnea. I think of heart failure. I think of COPD. I think of asthma. Um, uh, you know, none of those make sense here. Um, you know, I guess, could she have had an MI, which was silent and had, you know, worsening of her ejection fraction and pulmonary congestion? Though I'm not hearing any other signs of CHF. I haven't heard about edema. Haven't heard about paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. That's okay. right. She didn't have any of that. Okay. Um, does She's not a smoker, so that would make COPD incredibly unlikely. Um, she doesn't have a history of asthma, so it would make new asthma in a woman of this age very unlikely. Um, so it's a tough case. Um, the other, th- you know, in- infectious disease doesn't really make any sense. She doesn't sound like she's had fevers. She, not even cough. No, no cough, no fevers. Okay, hasn't been losing weight. Has not been losing weight. Okay, so, you know, a chronic pulmonary infection would be unlikely too. Um, So I think what I'm getting to is I'm getting to either atypical presentations of things we see a lot um, or some, you know, more zebra-y things. Um, You know, things I I never want to miss is pulmonary embolism, right? I've certainly seen my share of PEs present in a subacute and atypical way. I guess that's a possibility for this woman. If she ended up having PEs, I'd be worried about why she was having PEs, but that would be a whole nother story. Um, I guess I would think about other, um, you know, sort of interstitial lung diseases, things which could progress kind of quickly. 
Those might be the idiopathic, you know, pulmonary fibrosis. It could be the allergic um, 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 interstitial diseases. Um, it could, you know, God forbid, be malignancy um, with metastasis to the lung. I I'd sort of expect for other symptoms uh, in that case. Um, and she is young for that, but that's a possibility. Um, so I guess that's where I'm going to go. And I'll ask you, do you want me to ask for tests now or should we get back to that after we talk a little bit? Um, let's do it after. Okay. Okay. Let's do it after. Okay. Um, I, the, I guess the, the one thing I would say is that because I'm so lost after the history, um, uh, she is someone who I pay a lot of attention um, to what her exam was like because I'm sort of trying to find something that I could go after. Sure. So not only would I check her vital signs, but I'd look back and I'd see, you know, is she actually more tachycardic resting in the office than she has been previously? Let me recheck her weight. She's not someone who I'd listen to and, you know, two spots on her back and leave it at that. I would really, you know, make sure I'm listening over the skin, listen all over her lungs. I'd really do a good heart exam. I'd actually have her lean forward. I'd get her into left lateral decubitus position um, to listen to her heart. And then I'd really look her over for edema as well. Let me ask you a question. I won't give you the answers to this, yeah. but what will be your first line tests for her? Um, so, you know, this lady is is not leaving my office without a CBC to see if she's anemic, because I always like to think about, you know, what are the non kind of cardiopulmonary things? I'd be checking um, uh, at least a BMP, basic metabolic panel, to make sure she's not acidotic, right? Which would be right. another sure. another cause. Um, and I think I would be doing both a chest X-ray and an EKG before she leaves the office. I think the money is probably going to be in the chest X-ray. Um, but, you know, if all of a sudden she's got anterior Q waves, um, that would tell me a lot. Right. And I think those are all reasonable tests. And we've certainly she she's not going to turn out to be anemic. So I'm happy to give that away. But it, we've certainly both seen patients who present just like this, who've yeah. had a progressive anemia and they present with dyspnea. It's not all that uncommon, okay. actually. Okay. okay, so let's leave the case um, and we're going to take a deep dive into dyspnea. Scott, you're going to give us five key points for the diagnosis of shortness of breath. I am. So dyspnea is a tough one, I have to say. I've been looking at this since we started on the book in 2002 and it's challenging. The differential diagnosis is pretty easy to remember. If you think about heart and the various components of the heart going from pericardium to myocardium to valvular disease and the electrical system and think about the lung and think about it anatomically as well. Think about alveoli and interstitium and blood vessels and pleura um, and bronchioles. Um, it's pretty easy to remember the differential diagnosis. The trouble is that even given the differential diagnosis of heart, blood, lung, none of the questions are really terribly good on history and physical to segregate. Is this a heart problem? Is this a lung problem? Is this a blood problem? And that's really unfortunate. Um, one pivotal question that is somewhat helpful, but only marginally so, is the chronicity. So we can certainly divide things into acute and chronic. And when we think about acute dyspnea, we think about MI, PE, asthma, pneumothorax, pneumonia, arrhythmia. It's still a long list, you know, acute aortic regurgitation, panic attacks. But that's complicated because a whole bunch of chronic conditions will occasionally present acutely. Heart failure can present with an acute exacerbation when somebody has a salt load. You know, asthma can present acutely. COPD can be relatively quiescent until someone gets an infection and all of a sudden they're much worse than they were previously. Um, and conversely, um, when we think about chronic dyspnea, we think about COPD and heart failure and interstitial lung disease, but occasionally conditions like PE, um, 
and asthma will present uh, both acutely and chronically. So it's not a clear-cut distinction uh, given all of that. Yeah, I, I think of shortness of breath very much in the way I think of chest pain, is that I start with acute and chronic. I recognize they have different differentials. Acute, you're going to be just all over the things that you can diagnose quickly and that can potentially kill somebody, right? Um, but it is true that after you sort of burn through all of those, you end up with some of the chronic things, which might be exacerbating. On the other side, the differential, on the chronic side, you know, there's some chronic things you think about, but then once you get past those, there are a lot of atypical presentations of acute things which can present chronically. Um, you know, pulmonary embolism comes to mind first and foremost in that, that, you know, if I had a nickel for every person who walked in with sort of chronically worsening exercise tolerance as, as you know, the presenting symptom for their chronic pulmonary emboli, you know, I'd be... I'd be a rich man. You'd at least have several nickels. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a very complex event diagram, unfortunately, that doesn't divide well. So our next pivotal point is actually something you said is when we're really not sure, it's to look at those four common conditions that present all the time and to say, hey, is there any chance it's one of those? So heart failure, COPD or asthma, PE and pneumonia. And when we look for diseases, what we really mean by that is we look for a combination of do they have associated symptoms of those diseases? Do they have risk factors for those or signs? And so you can take each one of those. So in heart failure, risk factors, does she have a history, like you said, of myocardial infarction or uncontrolled hypertension? Do they have the signs of an S3 gallop or JVD or edema or associated symptoms of orthopnea or paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea? COPD is pretty easy. In this country, if they're not a smoker, we can pretty much exclude it. That's not necessarily true in the underdeveloped world where there's a lot more inhaled combustible materials as people heat their homes. Asthma, you can ask if there's a family history or personal history of allergies or exercise-induced symptoms or cold-induced symptoms. And uh, pneumonia, of course, we could look for fever and cough. And basically, we have to go through each one of those and see if there's clues to any of those. I like it. When I talk about COPD, I, I often um, uh, ask the students, I was like, you know, worldwide, or at least outside the developed world, number one cause of COPD in women. And, you know, people always are like, well, it can't be smoking, otherwise he wouldn't be asking. And, and it's, it's, it's indoor cooking pollution. Um, and I like it when we have a conversation, we haven't talked about that. And you kind of come up with the, <laughs> with the same things to trick people on. The other thing I was thinking of as you were going through that would be interesting maybe as a as a side episode one day. I guess, you know, we we talk a lot, not really on the podcast, but outside about, you know, the system one and system two thinking, right? right. The kind of pattern recognition uh, versus that slower, um, more kind of hypothetical deductive reasoning. Um, and I think what's important in the pattern recognition is, you know, what are those diagnoses that you always think about immediately? And they're generally the most common. Um, they're certainly also the most dangerous. When we did chest pain, um, we talked about, you know, in the outpatient setting, it being um, angina, gastroesophageal reflux, musculoskeletal panic attack, and no diagnosis. You know, that's for outpatient chest pain. And you here bring up heart failure, COPD or asthma, pulmonary embolism, and pneumonia as those things which sort of jump to the list. It would be interesting to do that for kind of every diagnosis right, we right. talk about. Yeah, and we could probably do that off the top of our heads because it's what you do automatically. We yeah. actually have to resist that to create right. to use our systems, which is what we use right. when, when, when you need to slow when down. When you need to slow down. 
Point three, I think we're up to. Yeah, so, um, you know, when someone presents acutely, it is critical to think about a variety of must-not-miss hypotheses, and I just wanted to mention those. So one is arrhythmia, and what's really helpful there is just to realize whether the patient is short of breath when you're seeing them. If they're having the symptoms when you're seeing them and their normal sinus rhythm, you can pretty much take it off the list. If, on the other hand, the symptoms are episodic and their normal sinus rhythm when you're seeing them, you actually don't know if they're slipping in and out of atrial fibrillation or some other arrhythmia at the time that they're having it. Um, upper airway obstruction is another must not miss. And we, I know we'll do a podcast on it, but Strider is terrifying. Anyone who has inspiratory wheezing, <laughs> that should make you as panicked as it makes them because it almost always suggests it's a life-threatening um, problem. Um, acute coronary syndromes all have to be considered aortic dissection. Uh, pneumothorax, which is why we always get a chest X-ray on people who are acutely short of breath, as well as for the other possibilities in angioedema. The beauty of that is usually these aren't too hard to exclude with a good history, physical exam, and simple simple lab tests. Simple lab tests being, you know, a CBC, a chest X-ray, and an EKG are normally going to show you with a good history and physical those life-threatening possibilities. I will, in a way, defend myself, you know, of the things you just talked about. One thing I could have talked about with your case would be arrhythmia. And I have to say in my practice and probably in your practice as well, knowing the sort of age range of the patients we take care of, that a lot of the people who come in with kind of subacute dyspnea to me are people who have gone into atrial fibrillation since my last visit with them. Um, why I think it's unlikely in this patient is, uh, you know, you told me her vital signs were normal. I'd expect that if she was having really symptomatic atrial fibrillation, she'd probably be tachycardic or at least irregular. And if it was intermittent, I would have expected to hear mostly that, you know, there were days that she was fine and then there were days that she was really limited. Right, exactly. Point four? Well, point four is um, getting at what you'd already mentioned, which is when it's not clear, you do go back to that physical exam and history and say, is there any clue that's helpful? You know, so clues might be on history. If somebody had some chest pain with it, well, then that would narrow the differential diagnosis. And you might think about PE, um, if it was acute dissection, pneumothorax, or an acute uh, coronary syndrome. Um, one of the difficulties with chest pain is people with COPD and asthma often describe chest tightness and ischemia often describes tightness. So, you know, it is confusing. It's not always crystal clear. Um, on physical exam, obviously, if they have it, like you would already mentioned, JVD, S3 gallop edema, that's we're really going to go after heart failure. If they have crackles, it's a bit more complicated. It can be heart failure, it can be pneumonia, it can be interstitial lung disease. But basically, it's to really search for those. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, again, shortness of breath, like chest pain, you know, people have so many ways of describing their symptoms um, that you almost have to have a different way of taking the history for every patient you have to figure out what does this person mean by this complaint that it can be really frustrating. Right. I mean, one point I'll get to later is you really have to, the time course of it and to really compare what it is for them compare with before is really yeah. very important. Yeah. But we'll come back to that. Okay, so Scott, that probably brings us to the fifth point. Yeah, the fifth point is to use key diagnostic tests that are often helpful when you're stuck. Those would include pulmonary function tests, an echocardiogram, a D-dimer, and, you know, occasionally a brain natriuretic peptide. Great, great. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, I when I went to the test that I would order in this patient, um, I left off both D-dimer and BNP. Um, and those are tests that certainly, I mean, they, we didn't use them at all, right, 10 right. years ago. Right. 
and I use them more and more. And I think I use D-dimer very appropriately, which is in that person who's kind of low risk for PE, but it's going to help you sleep well, you know, you'll send it. BNP, um, brain natriuretic peptide, I think I probably overuse. Um, I send it to a lot of people who are short of breath that I'm just like, I don't know. Let's see if I get lucky and it's elevated and it helps me make the diagnosis of heart failure. And I got to say, I've, I've actually added that to my evaluation of edema, um, which I may get arrested for because I often have to fudge the <laughs> diagnosis to get it paid for. Um, but whatever, we can talk about that. <laughs> we won't put anything more about that on the podcast. Okay, let's go back to the case. All right. Give me my tests. You know what? Okay, just give me my tests. All right. So she, we already mentioned that her CBC was normal. Yep. Her chest x-ray was completely clear. <sighs> Cardiac silhouette's normal. No pleural effusions, no curly beelines, no revascularization, nothing. Okay. Okay. And the other, you asked for an EKG, yep. normal sinus rhythm. Okay. Uh, no SCT wave, Q wave changes. Okay. Nothing. Okay. And how about the um, basic metabolic panel? Normal. Okay, I, I think I'm going to have to um, call the lab and add on, and I know that I'm adding on tests that weren't available when you saw this person, but I think I need to add on both a D-dimer and a BNP at this point. Okay, so the BNP was normal and the D-dimer was high. Okay, um, so I, I should say at this point, if I was, you know, even before those tests, if I was sort of, you know, where am I? Um, the things which are coming up now is interstitial lung disease that is mild enough that I'm not seeing it on a chest x-ray, but that I would see on a CT or pulmonary embolism. Um, with a positive D-dimer now, um, I would go to a um, CT angiogram. I think you at the time probably had to, <laughs> I won't belabor the point of making fun of you. So I'll say, you know, maybe you had to do a VQ scan, um, you know, and, and the difference would be, you know, if her D-dimer was negative, I think at this point, I would probably go to a high res, high resolution CT as my next test. Um, so it is a bit of a branch point there based on the D-dimer. So it was, it was interesting how this rolled out. So uh, as I'd mentioned, I was an intern and I'd always been taught that pulmonary emboli were acute. Yeah. And the one thing I was certain she didn't have was a pulmonary embolism <laughs> when she showed up to the emergency room. Uh, spoiler alert, that's what she had. But we first did an echocardiogram to see if she had some heart failure that maybe we didn't know why she had and that was yeah. normal. And I did a methacholine challenge test to see if this was asthma <laughs> and that was normal. Um, we didn't have high-res CAT scans for interstitial lung disease, although the chest x-ray, just for everyone's knowledge, is about 85% sensitive for ILD. So it would be unusual, but not impossible. And I forget the other tests we did. And meanwhile, my attending is nudging me, as it were, to get a VQ scan. And I remember uh, getting ready to leave for the day and having forgotten to look at it. And you couldn't look at a computer in those days to find the VQ scan, you had to walk down to radiology. So I walked down to radiology and I looked across the reading room and saw this VQ scan hanging from the wall with multiple perfusion defects on it. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, <laughs> sure enough, that was her. She must have had 30 small pulmonary emboli wow. over time, making her chronically short of breath. Wow. Um, any cause that you guys figured she out? She was on hormone replacement okay. therapy. Okay. Okay. She's probably also factor five light and positive, but you didn't know that. We don't know that either yeah. then. Right. Interesting. Okay, um, great case. So um, let's move on to uh, fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Why don't you start us off with some fingerprints? Sure. So the two I want to talk about first are for heart failure. And S3 Gallup has a likely ratio positive of 11. 
JVD of five. And I just want to relate a different case I saw several years ago of a guy who came in asymptomatic, still playing doubles tennis in the 70s. And he had a loud S3 gallop. And I was certain he had it, but I'm like, that's so odd because he's still playing doubles tennis. And I got an echo because I know it's so strikingly um, specific. And actually his EF was 28%. Wow. So he must have slowed down a lot in his playing tennis, but hadn't admitted that to himself. Yeah. I think the one thing to remember with the S3 gallop and the JVD is is the kappa for those are very low, right? Um, that depends on the operator. Um, you need to learn what an S3 sounds like. You need to right. know how to look for JVD. And that's why everyone should listen to all the patients on their service, because it is really a great skill to master. Yeah. Um, I'll add another heart sound, I think, less difficult to hear um, is if you're thinking about aortic regurgitation um, as a cause of dyspnea, um, hearing a diastolic murmur, um, a diastolic AR murmur, has a likelihood ratio of at least 40 for AR. And that's usually you know, a fairly easy thing to hear, easiest to hear with the patient um, sitting up, leaning forward over the aortic area. Yeah, and it can radiate down to the left sternal border. The one thing I'd add to that is um, if somebody gets aortic regurgitation from an acute valve rupture, though, you won't hear the murmur. Absolutely. Because the what happens is the left ventricle comes to a full volume because it hasn't dilated yet uh, so quickly that the murmur is too short, even though the pressures are very high. So in acute aortic regurgitation, you won't find it. But it is very specific when you hear it. All right, another fingerprint. So this is another thing that wasn't around when we were trained, and I'd have to say nobody better put this in my hands because I can't do it. But the point of care ultrasound in residents who've been trained is has a very is has fingerprint as well. For an ejection fraction of less than forty, the likelihood ratio of it being heart failure is fifteen, and they can actually identify curly B lines with a likelihood ratio of seven. So it can it doesn't apparently take a master ultrasonographer. Yeah, yeah. The I guess I guess I'll I'll jump on and add to that. Um, Point of care ultrasound is also very, very, very good for pneumothorax. Um, and, you know, pneumothorax is not a hard diagnosis to make, right? But, but look, it's actually easier to um, put an ultrasound on somebody's chest than it is to send them to radiology for an x-ray, even if you're in the emergency room. So, um, so that's another really a diagnostic test. Um, let's move on to some common misconceptions. So this is one of the most important misconceptions that we see all the time, which is Simply that we've just emphasized how important these findings are. But when they're not there, pardon me, <coughs> it means nothing. One great example of this was there was a study of heart failure that was very patients with very severe heart failure, where not only did they have severe heart failure, but they were volume overloaded at the time. They actually did a Swan-Gans catheter. And the average pulmonary capillary wedge pressure in these patients was 22, which is very high. We'll put most people in pulmonary edema. 42% of those patients with high wedge pressures had no findings of heart failure, no crackles, no JVD, and no edema. So resist the temptation to say, I don't have this, this patient doesn't have these findings, so they can't have heart failure. That's just not true. Right. And you can pick groups of patients who it's even less sensitive, right? We talk a lot about COPD and heart failure, how hard that diagnosis right, is to totally. make. I think a sensitivity of 60% in that group would be, would be absurd. You would never expect that. It's totally true. That's a good point. Um, I, I guess I'll sort of build on this. And, and, you know, I think any student who's ever been with us knows how much we, we beat to death the fact that positive findings are important and negative findings are not important, right? Um, we've written a paper which we have submitted to how many journals? That oh, it's I don't know. <laughs> Ten. Um, and so I'll go specifically for PE with this. Um, 
So let me phrase it this way. So you can make a PE diagnosis with signs and symptoms, okay? That's the misconception. Because in fact, there are so many things that the positive likelihood ratios are terrible for that you really don't need them. So I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna fire some off, okay? So sudden onset dyspnea, likelihood ratio 2.7. Syncope, 2.0. Leg swelling, 1.9. Dyspnea even, 1.7. Pleuritic chest pain, okay? Which a lot of people would be like, you know, like the sine qua non, right, of, of PE would be, would be dyspnea and pleuritic chest pain. Pleuritic chest pain, positive likelihood ratio, 1.5, you know, basically worthless. You know, it's unbelievable, except it gets to an adage, which somebody else said to me one time, which is really true. When you're sure they have a PE, they often don't. And when you're sure they don't, they often do. I think we beat PE to death. But if, if this podcast leaves you with nothing but being fearful that you have no idea how to diagnose PE, that's appropriate, I think. That's okay. I think so. Yeah, one more misconception. I, I do, which is that just so that people know, patients with PE are often not hypoxic. Um, they don't have to be at all. That gets us into some interesting pathophysiology, which I would love to delve into, but I will spare the audience. I would not let you. Oh, thanks. Um, I have a pet peeve. Go ahead. Um, let me throw out my pet peeve. You know what? I feel like actually we're always so crazy about pet peeves, but but I think I think my pet peeve here is something we've already said is that um, you know the the converse of the fingerprint doesn't really exist, right? Um, the fingerprint is that diagnosis, that finding that if it's there, it it almost definitely suggests a diagnosis. But there's no converse to that. So if something is lacking, it doesn't mean the diagnosis is not there. I, I think I've already spoken to my pet peeve about oxygen status, so I'm going to go on to clinical pearls. Okay. I think we beat that to death enough. Let's hear a clinical pearl. Um, I'm going to change uh, directions for just a minute and just remind everyone that everyone that wheezes doesn't have asthma and COPD. And those of us that have been around for a while have seen plenty of patients who, believe it or not, when they get heart failure, wheeze. So be cautious about the specificity of wheezing, even though we're not specifically addressing that today. It's not nearly as specific as we often think. Right. And I think we will get into kind of a deep discussion of that when we get to wheezing and strider. Um, and there are a lot of symptoms associated with dyspnea that you might think are specific, but are not. Um, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, or I wouldn't say that, let, let's say orthopnea, orthopnea right. is a big one. Um, because, you know, just about everybody who has underlying lung disease you know, their respiratory mechanics are worse when they're lying down. And so they'll often be, you know, sleeping in a chair, not because they have heart failure, but because they're having trouble breathing. Right. You're never going to see an asthmatic with an acute attack lying on the bed in the emergency room. Right. They're going to be sitting up. Right. <laughs> a good point. Um, so I've got a clinical pearl, which is a weird clinical pearl. Okay. But it's one of those things that I always talk about. And it's a, um, a paper written by a real mentor of mine from the past, a um, doctor by the name of Richard Schwartzstein, who um, talked about this paper when I trained. And I've got it in front of me because I have to remind myself of it. It's from 1996. So I'm going back almost as far as you. It was published in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. And it's called Descriptors of Breathlessness in Cardiorespiratory Diseases. And the interesting thing about this paper, and I got to say, it has actually not changed my practice at all, but it's incredibly interesting. Um, one of the authors had this idea that, you know, when someone complains to us of pain, we go crazy about well, what kind of pain is it? You know, what does it feel Sharp like? Is it burning? Right, right, right. right. And when someone tells you they're short of breath, you're like, oh, yeah, 
short of breath, right? Right. And their idea was that, you know, maybe the shortness of breath that people are experiencing are actually different depending on what's causing them. Right. So like, do people who have heart failure have different dyspnea than people who have asthma, have different dyspnea than people who have COPD? Right. And what these guys did is they they came up with a whole bunch of questions to try to um, you know describe the different types of dyspnea. And they asked people them in the emergency room. And the key point is that it really does seem that people um, who experience dyspnea from different causes are experiencing a different kind of shortness of breath. But it's not different enough and our language isn't really good enough to, to, to you know, use that as a diagnostic tool. But geez, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, right? I mean, it's true because some people will say, I can't get enough oxygen and you test their right. oxygen is okay. I can't take a deep breath. Right. You know, I'm short of breath. And it's often tough to tease out, right? Mm-hmm. And I've taken just the thing of, okay, you're short of breath. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, you got another one? Right. Um, the last clinical pearl I would say to you is, one of the trickiest parts of dyspnea, I think, is figuring out whether there's a disease at all. So I see lots of elderly patients, and many of them, if asked, are a little shorter breath. And whether or not that represents just deconditioning or whether that represents a real illness is sometimes tricky. And so one of the things I really I like to do with my patients is try to figure out what their breathing was like recently before. And one way to get at that before the COVID pandemic was to ask them where they traveled, because often when people travel, they one, have to walk around. And two, they can tell you, I went to my kid's house in December or in the summer, whatever. And so comparing that baseline with how they are now is really important. If you are a medical student and you're used to running five miles a day and you go to walk two, up one flight of stairs and you're short of breath, that's probably abnormal for you. But in my 80-year-old patients who don't do much, walking up a flight of stairs and being short of breath is probably baseline. Yeah. So I just think that's helpful to keep in mind. Yeah. It's a little bit the difference of being short of breath and out of breath, right? Um, which is right. The other point that came up when, when, you were, when you were talking for me, and it gets a little bit to therapy, um, and I often think of this as, with asthma therapy, is because you know, dyspnea is uncomfortable. And so a lot of times people will avoid dyspnea by decreasing what they do. And that makes it hard because you may feel like your patient is um, well controlled with whatever disease they have, when in fact, they're just not doing anything anymore. I think there's really good data about that for aortic stenosis, as a matter of fact. I think that's why your question for her is really useful. People do just that in aortic stenosis and we say they're not short of breath, but they're sitting around now. Right. That's a good pearl. My last pearl is is going to be um, something I think I brought up. I definitely brought up t- talking about the case is just um, remember non-cardiovascular pulmonary causes of dyspnea. Anemia, metabolic acidosis are certainly the ones that come up the most. Um, I've definitely been burnt by both of them and have begun pulmonary workups for someone who was acidotic from their renal failure and um, not a great thing to do. So before we adjourn, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So one of the other tricky ones, I think, is panic. Yeah. So, you know, we both see patients periodically where they're shorter, but they have shortness of breath at different time periods. And what, what pearls would you share with folks about when you really think it's panic and you're comfortable enough not to start working it up? Right. I think what I would say, and I'm pretty cautious here, and I'm sure you're, you know, 10 times more cautious, um, unless the person clearly has panic attacks, right? Unless the person comes in and they say, I've been having panic attacks forever, and these are my panic attacks. If the person's coming in and complaining to you of dyspnea, panic attack should not be your first diagnosis. 
you may say, huh, I think this person might have panic attacks, but what else could I reasonably consider? And you should evaluate that and exclude that before you really start treating them for panic disorder. Right. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because a lot of the symptoms make people anxious. Yeah. So there's good data, for, for instance, in vertiginous people, that vertiginous pa patients often have anxiety about as much as people in whom the final diagnosis is anxiety. And you right. could imagine having a PE or a fib getting short of breath and then feeling anxious. Sure, sure. sure. And also, I mean, you, I've certainly taken care of, and I am now taking care of a couple of people with really bad end-stage COPD who have anxiety, and they get anxious because they realize that they're at the end of their life. They also get anxious when they're more dyspneic. And figuring out how to treat that stuff is, oh my God, a total bear. That is tricky. So we hope you found this episode of the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast, S2D, useful and a bit enjoyable. We're going to add, if you like listening to us, please rate us on iTunes. We hear that's important. The Symptom to Diagnosis podcast, um, if it's raised um, issues for you and you want to chat with us, um, you can certainly tweet at me, Adam Seafew. Scott Stern has intelligently stayed off Twitter. <laughs> um, as a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print through all the usual places on your mobile device, and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. And Scott, I gotta say, you know, as I was preparing for this, um, I looked through symptom diagnosis and the dyspnea chapter, which was um, written by Bob Trowbridge, is really amazing. You know, the questions that came up for me was, so, you know, what are the test characteristics for these various findings for heart failure? I actually looked up specifically one of the things you talked about, which was rails and heart failure. And you just find anything in this chapter. It's amazing. Yeah, that's great. A reminder that the cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. I'll finish off. Uh, remember that the music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Thank you. <laughs>